This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two-ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants, and the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety, and it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com and use promo code ZIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com, promo code ZIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside. Now this is a game-changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far. They've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
All right, we are rolling, and I am here with my friend Charlie. How's it going today, brother? Going good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Doing good. Thanks for coming on, man. Um, yeah, man, I'm a fan of your work. You know, we met in Austin um, at the podcast launch event um, for the Time Will Podcast Network probably a year, year and a half ago. Um, and I had known of your work before we met as well, but it was cool vibing with you in person. And I think you had come to like our Airbnb and hung out. Um, we had a couple of nice chats, you know, around just art and music and psychedelics, all the good stuff. So <laughs> it's been uh, a long time coming. You know, I think I mentioned back then I would love to have you on my show and finally we're here. So definitely thanks for taking the time. And uh, again, amazing work with, with what you're doing with your art. Thank you so much. Yeah, I remember the last time we saw each other was, I think, the first time that I did Hoppe with you out of that snake's head. And, oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that was an experience. I think that uh, conversation we had afterwards, I was still drenched in sweat from having a little bit of a physical breakdown from doing a little bit too much of that stuff. But <laughs> then I got my own little thing, the blow up the nose and my own little packet of that stuff. It's, it's good. Yeah, it's great to like wake your brain up. Oh, yeah, it is for sure. Yeah, that's called the Kuripe. That's the pipe you use. Uh, yeah. I actually, I, I had taken a break for a, quite a few weeks from using Hoppe, um, but I did today. So that's kind of funny. I was just like trying to get in the podcast zone. I was like, yeah, let's 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 go there. Um, but yeah, that's powerful stuff. I mean, the first time I did it as well, I was actually totally drenched in sweat. I was on the floor. I was late to whatever I was ex- supposed to be at. To had to take an extra shower before leaving and uh it's a it's a humbling uh medicine we'll just say <laughs> yeah yeah i always forget about it i forget about it and then i spot my little thing with the container in it and i think hey today's a good day to have a little bit of a unusual experience but good stuff right absolutely so yes you create stunning visionary artwork um it's very very colorful very neon very just kind of swirly and ethereal um i'm curious you know how long have you been creating art and did your art always kind of have this style or was it something maybe you evolved to over time uh yeah i didn't i wasn't like an especially artsy kid or anything like that i never took an art class like i I wasn't a good artist i was just kind of a a space head and i would doodle in my notebook so like if you look at my notebooks from high school they're covered in these very very simple kind of goofy geometric patterns and that was before i ever did psychedelics but i think there was like a seed of the psychedelic going on in there and then when i was about 18 something like that i did mushrooms for the first time and there was always kind of an impulse after those experiences to draw so i would draw and i wasn't taking it seriously at all i had no artistic talent no knowledge of art in any way and i would just kind of doodle stuff and then over time you know i I did more psychedelics I, i think really when i started to get serious about art was when i did dmt for the first time because then i was like oh shit like now i have like a visual landscape where you know if if i put my mind to it i can do a very 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 poor job of recreating whatever i'm seeing here and then it just went from like drawing little drawings to you know getting more markers and getting more into the drawing and then eventually you know i just kind of made a decision when I had a job that I didn't like that, like, you know, if, if I'm, I'm not going to be in a corporate world or anything like that, so I might as well try to get good at art. So I started painting and that was about four years ago. So I'm about four years into painting, but it was really, yeah, it was always kind of a psychedelic based thing. And I, I never really had any classical art training or anything like that. Wow. I resonate with that story. In fact, um, and for people who have heard my show, they're probably 
already aware of this um, story of mine, but I, my one of my favorite artists um, in in my early childhood years, which is clearly before I ever had a psychedelic experience, was Alex Gray. I don't know why. I mean, other than that, it was paired with Tool, which I didn't exactly know why they became my favorite band either. It was just something speaking to my soul in there. Um, but yeah, Alex Gray's artwork just enraptured me and i started doodling the the eye the alex gray eye from lateralis and also Ten Thousand days i learned how to draw both of those and that was my doodle you know on the notebook and and on the the back of the the worksheet you know that you would use in math and stuff it was that visionary uh symbol although i had no idea what it was what it meant what it represented and it's weird that it's almost like us etching that like further manifested that experience to come find us what would you kind of say about that i definitely think so and and i definitely feel like before i ever did psychedelics i was kind of a weird trippy kid before i did psychedelics so that kind of stuff always appealed to me and i do think there's something about psychedelic art that draws people in who wouldn't necessarily be into art otherwise Mm -hmm. i feel like our generation is sort of the first in a while to have an appreciation for art almost because there's so much of that accessible very colorful very weird mystical uh, art. And there's, there's something about that that draws people in that it, it's not necessarily about art. Um, and I think since I've become an artist, I've like appreciated more classical types of art a little bit more than I used to, but there's something about it that I think triggers the kind of same part of the brain that maybe like crazy music does. So maybe it makes it a little bit more accessible. And definitely I do think there's maybe like a a weird future affecting the past thing going on with that, where part of you knows that eventually one day you're going to have these experiences. So, you know, your younger self is attracted to that because the future holds the, the, you know, the the seed of whatever's going on there. So yeah, I I definitely resonate with that big time. Yeah. 100%. And is it, that that is one of the most remarkable understandings that comes with psychedelics is about how oddly things can feel like they were destined to happen or they were foretold or you finally something clicks into place about what a whole bunch of past experiences were almost gearing you up for, you know, and for you, it was kind of to become this visionary artist, you know, you've got quite a following, you've got uh, amazing kind of portrayals of, of pop icons in the psychedelic space. And as well, I'm sure just maybe friends and entities maybe that you've met and these types of things is, is what comes to me when I'm looking at your artwork. Um, and that's cool that DMT became kind of one of those like really heavy inspirational tools for you to be able to bring and channel that visionary realm through the art, um, what would you kind of say is the like kind of mission that, or mi- not not mission, but maybe what the art is trying to speak? You know what I mean? Like when you, it's flowing through you, are you encapsulating experiences you've had? Are you drawing in the now from the imaginal realm, or is it just kind of like this is how I? would see a friend in a psychedelic space? You know, what, what are you trying to emit through your artwork? I think it's a combination of all that stuff. I mean, the real answer is I don't know. I mean, most of the time when I'm making art, and I think this is true for most creatives, it might start with an intention. It might start with like, okay, I'm going to recreate the DMT realm or I'm going to recreate this experience I had. But when it's done, 
and maybe this is just because I'm not very good at like going through with plans at this point, but when it's done, it's something totally different. So the truth is I don't really know what's driving it. I think that whatever it is that drives creativity in general is kind of hard to pin down. And it's easy to come up with an explanation for like, this is what this is and this is what that represents. And this is where this came from. But I, I don't think you can ever really pin it down. I think when I first started doing art, I was very intentionally sitting down and being like, okay, I just, saw this crazy thing and this crazy experience and I'm going to try to draw it. And I know I'm not going to come anywhere close, but this is like the beginning of a process that gets me there. And I still feel that way. I don't really feel like I'm any closer to recreating the kinds of experiences I'm trying to necessarily. It's just almost like I've gotten more refined at doing the stick figure version of the DMT realm that I'm trying to do. And hopefully eventually maybe decades down the line when I'm way more experienced, I'll be able to like go into those realms or have an experience and be like, okay, I'm going to try to paint exactly what I just saw there. But honestly, at this point, it's more of like a, I had an experience. There's maybe an echo of it that's going on in the back of my mind when I'm painting something and maybe even looking at like, I think part of the reason that I do so much with really bright, crazy colors is that they stick into my mind. So like if I'm doing a crazy bright painting and then I go about my day and I've been staring at that crazy bright painting all day, it sort of colors reality a little bit. So I, I feel like part of the instinct to just do like really bright colors, crazy face that's doing a crazy, you know, expression with lines all over it just comes from like, that's going to, what's going to stimulate me to have that experience in the future. So I hope eventually the goal is in like imagination land, like go into the DMT realm and then come out and sketch it out and then try to actually recreate it. But at this point, I feel like I'm just kind of like figuring out how to make colors look cool uh, for mm -hmm. my own enjoyment. And then maybe that'll lead to something more, you know, more intense, but we'll see. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that brings like an element of fun into it for yourself because, you know, th this is work, you know, it's called artwork for a reason. Like these things take time. It takes precision. Um, sometimes you just ended up doing, you know, a whole bunch of work on a thing that's not even calling to you anymore. And it's like, I ah, get this thing away from me. I don't like it, you know, um, from what I've heard. But it, it is important to find that element of fun that stimulates yes that that creative energy so that you know maybe you're almost you're out upon your you know about your day and you're thinking about that project and and it's it's exciting and you want to go back to it you know because maybe some other times with other paintings it's like this thing is a son of a bitch you know <laughs> have you ever had that experience where like a painting just was like almost it was like a tough painting on you on, you know what I mean? Pretty much every time, honestly, it's like every time there's a point, it's like the early stages I'm stoked on it and I'm excited. Like this is going to be awesome. And then the middle stages, I have a little mental breakdown where I don't know if it's going to work out or not. And I feel like I've completely forgotten how to paint. And then there's like a point where you get over that hump and then I think it's cool again. And then just before I finish, usually there's a moment where I'm pissed off at it. So I feel like there's this <laughs> up and down. And that's a part of, you know, it. it I, I think it's easy to paint the creative process, especially when it's psychedelics as this like very light, happy thing where it's like, oh, I'm just expressing my heart for the people. But most of the time, it's like 
um, you know, the paint's drying too fast. It's like slow and gunky and it's kind of frustrating. And then there's a point of like creative flow where I'm in it and I'm really pumped about it. And then it like goes back down. So I think that's really just like riding this ebb and flow of like mm-hmm. really good feeling, creative inspiration, self doubt, and then back up to creative inspiration. And then usually when it's done, I'm pretty happy with it for the most part. But like, there's always this like up and down and up and down and up and down. Right. Yeah. I actually really appreciate that dimension of art and it makes me so much more, it raises my level of art art appreciation is to not only see the picture and like take the picture in, but know that this was an, a transmutation process by that artist. It has like the emotions embedded into it. It has the experience, the time and the energy of even the space that it was created in. For example, when people live paint at like a festival or at, a, you know, like on stage with a band or stuff like that, like the paint, the painting itself is like absorbing the energy of that space. And, you know, like, let's say it's a big, a big concert, let's just say a thousand people. It's almost like metaphysically imprinting on that painting uh, all of that energy, all of that communal tribal togetherness and that sticks. And especially I think that it also sticks in the artist's mind when they try to think of maybe what does this piece uh, bring value wise, as in how long did it take me? Where did I paint it at? How much does it mean to me? And that can kind of raise, you know, almost help you price it in a sense, because it's like, man, this one stuck with me through all these crazy dope events i almost don't want to let go of it so if i do i'm going to put a, a heftier price on it you know like what would you say about all that a hundred percent yeah and there's definitely some connection between like the energy any kind of art whether it's music or painting or whatever you're doing has and the mental state of the artist and then like the environment that they're in there's the, i mean there's been times when i was live painting when I'm feeling super chill and like it's a relatively calm event and I'm just kind of like going with the flow and not rushing. And then there have been times where I just like got a little bit too stoned and the music is a little bit too loud and it's just way overwhelming. So you kind of get into like tunnel vision, just paint, 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 paint mode. And that's definitely reflected in the work. I mean, I have some paintings where it's just like crazy face, anxiety riddled, like super colors everywhere. And I feel like that's kind of a part of the creative process for most people who are making anything where there's going to be that manic sort of anxiety driven part of the creative process. And I don't even mean like anxiety in a bad way where it's almost like physical reality is rushing you to push something out there. And like the way that it does it is by taking control of your body and making you feel this like deep sense of unease, but like a a motivated unease. And then there's parts where I'm just like totally content And I'm like going slow and like the one little part that I'm working on looks real cool. And I'm just happy to work on that one little part. But it's definitely that balance between, you know, the environment that you might get live painting with loud music that's like driving you to go fast, 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 fast. And then like the slow drinking a cup of tea, hanging out in my apartment, smoking a bowl type of vibe that, that, you know, I I think is probably very familiar for, for most creatives. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. Um, so you had mentioned smoking cannabis while you're creating, do you ever microdose and or fully dose when you try to paint or or is that kind of like the discovery part? And then you can't really maybe bring the art through while you're in that mood or that mode that psychedelics can put us in. 
I like to microdose like every now and then when I'm painting. I, th- I think it's a good way to kind of get you in the zone. For me, it helps me focus. Large doses, I've had a few paintings that I started on large doses where it's good to do like a big painting where you're doing big, crazy motions and stuff like that. But any sort of detail work when you're tripping, it's just like, what am I even doing? I don't know how to focus on this at all. But, you know, it's almost like the more expanded your mind is the more space you need in order to create so like if i'm tripping crazy hard which i i haven't done much lately to be honest but like you know if you're tripping really hard and you're painting on a big surface you can kind of just be wild with it but if you're tripping super hard and you try to focus in on a little thing then you're just going to get lost like there's i mean maybe some people can do it most people i've talked to tend to have a hard time painting on large doses but small doses, it's great. Microdosing and painting is is the shit. That's where it's at because it really just focuses you in and gets you like that little taste of the psychedelic world, like just that little bit of it where you're like, I know it's right around the corner. Like it's not overwhelming my world, but it's right there and I can kind of pull a little bit of it and put it into the painting. Totally. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I have a couple of artist buddies and um, they all kind of say the same thing is it's like, when you're in the midst of a psychedelic experience, you would almost think that'd be the time to create, but like there's a whole different like set of motor functions that have to be operating and uh, some type of focus mind as well, which certain psychedelic things make you focus, but sometimes not on a, on a task that's like with your hands or, or your eyes. It's like you're focused on this whole other place that isn't even here, you know, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. on base reality, you know? <laughs> And you need a balance. I think to create anything, you need a balance between like the imaginary realms and the physical realms because you're trying to kind of bring something from over there into here. And when you're tripping crazy hard, there's no balance. It's like 90% imagination, 10% physical. So it's like to be able to take something from that, it's like you're trying to pick up this big boulder and stick it into a little hole. It just doesn't really work. You need to just kind of sit with it and experience it. And then later, usually it's after big trips, I get crazy creative motivation. I feel like a big trip is kind of a call to action. Like it's, it's like a, you know, you just had this crazy experience. You better go do something with it kind of thing where, yeah, where like a a little trip is more of just like a mini version of that. Yeah. I say the same thing and definitely resonate there. Have you in any psychedelic states, had like this aha moment, like I know what to do next with my art or I know how to take my art to the next level. And maybe would you share an example of, of that happening? Uh, yeah. Usually when that happens, yeah. Usually when that happens, I don't fully get it. Usually there's some, it's like a big crazy image where, you know, at some point in the future, I need to make this big, crazy composition that's going to encapsulate what I experienced. But I I honestly don't know if I've succeeded at that yet. Um, I've had a few paintings, like I had a recent painting that I finished that was a self-portrait of me just kind of staring at my hands, like classic, you're tripping too hard, staring at your hands. And I actually smoked DMT and stared at my hands to prepare for that painting, which was a, mm-hmm. an interesting experience for sure. But, you know, I, I kind of feel like a lot of the big inspirations I've had in trips are things that haven't materialized yet, where it's almost going to be like a several year process to get to the point where I feel like, you know, I saw this, wild scene in a trip and I got it onto a canvas. I feel like I'm almost at this 
weird point where I haven't quite figured out how to create something that's that grand and like maybe five, 10 years down the road, I'll feel like I'm there. Uh, but I mean, that's the goal. The goal is to get there. I think it's a slow moving process for sure. Like there's these little payoffs that you get mm-hmm. when like you get an, an inspiration and it like leads to some painting that I did. And like the painting might not necessarily be the exact representation of that aha moment that I had in the trip where I was like, Oh shit, this very specific thing just popped up. But it's like a little like step on the stone towards the eventually getting there, hopefully. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Um, What is it about actual paint on a canvas um, that you really prefer? Because I know a lot of today's creators are digitally based. Is there something that you just kind of, you know, like, well, what is your resonance with the actual you know, using the hands and and the materials in the real world, you know, because we know you can produce these types of images both ways. But um, and of course, there's there's stylistic dimensions to both as well. Um, But yeah, what would you say about that? I, I think there's like a magic to physical stuff. There is to like digital stuff as well, for sure. A very different just because you have more tools to pull from and there's kind of like a wider spectrum of things you can do with digital stuff. But I think the limitation of like being bound to the physical world, there's like a magic there. And the fact that you're creating one thing that's going to be the only object that's like that, I think there's something very deep in like maybe in the human psyche, but maybe even deeper than that in there being like a singular object that was created from things that came from the earth and like physically exists. And I, I think there's something to that that like makes it special in a way, like not necessarily better than digital art. I mean, there's a lot of people who do great stuff with digital art, but there's something like very deeply embedded in our side. I think it's the difference in a lot of ways between hearing like somebody play a guitar in a small room and then hearing like music in a big theater where it's being projected out of Uh, speakers like there's just a difference there's like a visceral feeling that you get from it and also i just have a hard time focusing on screens so there's like very practical reasons for it i'm just like not good at focusing on learning technology like i'll play around with an ipad which is very similar to painting it's like very intuitive but anything that involves like layers of technology i'm just like a dumbass about so it's like it's (laughs) it's both things it's both that i'm drawn to physical stuff and that i'm like not very good with digital stuff Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, I agree with the point about like the rarity almost. It's like there's one of one, you know, like the original non-fungible token. Um, <clears throat> there's just one painting, you know, and yes, you can make the cliche prints and that type of thing as well. Um, but the actual real one, I think, does have a lot of value. And we've seen that proven with, you know, like Picasso, right? Like his paintings are worth millions and millions because there's just one, right? There's just one Mona Lisa. Uh, In Alex Gray's world, you know, um, those giant sacred mirrors, there's there's just one, you know? Um, So I I resonate with that as well. And there was this, what is the band's name? Father Yod, I think, was the band's name. Um, But anyway, what was unique about them and why I'm bringing them up is they created these visionary vinyls that were, there was like a single vinyl of, it was like a one-of-one recording of something they had recorded. There was only one vinyl, but they also made it, it, the container of that vinyl was pretty much a one-of-one 
treasure chest box piece of art with like crystals and sacred geometry etched into it. And it was just this like super dope thing that I feel like it'd be an artifact if it was found, you know? So there's like this artifact ability of like visionary art being one of one versus just like, Oh, I put it on the internet and that's all it is. It's like just a digital file. Yeah. Yeah. And if like we get hit by a meteor or something and there's a basement somewhere that miraculously survives with a bunch of paintings in it, like somebody might dig those up. Like there's this, I don't know. I I feel like there's like this, there's like ways you can imprint things in reality. And there's a difference in the imprint on reality that comes from anything that's like physically bound to something that's digital. And like the digital thing has dimensions that the physical thing doesn't, but the physical thing is like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly how to describe it beyond that. It's just like bound mm-hmm. to reality in a way that, that you can't be unless it's like there. Right. Yeah. I love that. Very cool. So <clears throat> to go in the, the direction of psychedelic experiences, um, how old were you when you had your first psychedelic experience? You said, actually, I remember you saying 18 and mushrooms. Is that right? Yeah, I was, I was 18 the first time I did mushrooms. Um, I'd done like crazy high dose edibles by mistake when I was like 15, mm. which was very true. It was trippier than a lot of my mushroom trips. Uh, that's a whole other story. But yeah, I was about 18 and, and I was a, I was a bit of a trippy kid. I was sick a lot when I was a little kid and I had a lot of fevers and stuff like that. So I had kind of a history when I was little of like hallucinations and like deeply bizarre, you know, nighttime experiences and that kind of thing. So when I first did mushrooms, there was kind of an, Oh shit, this is what I've been looking for kind of moment Mm -hmm. where it's like, Oh man, I I was in, I feel like a very deeply existential place before that, where I had this Mm -hmm. sense of reality being not exactly what I thought it was or not like what people projected to be in school or in popular culture. But like, I didn't have like a, a thing, like an aesthetic to attach that to. And I think a lot of times when you have that sense of there being something else, but you don't have, you know, the, the visual connection to it, even if you don't have like, I think religion fills that hole for a lot of people. I didn't have that as a kid. So it was almost like doing psychedelics provided like a colorful background to the sense of there being something else that like, it's almost like it went from being this deep, endless void to being like a colorful bardo with lots of you know, stuff on it. And there's something that's kind of terrifying about that, but also comforting and, and that I, I really needed at that time for sure. And, and I think that's what happens with a, a lot of people where you go from being, you know, there's so many stories of somebody going from being like a teenage atheist type, who's like very existential mm-hmm. about reality and, you know, thinks death is the end and all that kind of stuff to being like, Oh shit, there's something there. And, and yeah, yeah, that was definitely my, my early experience with psychedelics was I think less, it had less depth than it does now, but it, it was like a very kind of gentle, like, here you go. You you can have this thing that's going to make you feel some comfort. And then later on down the road, I had some nightmare death trips that like made me a little bit less easy about all that. But the early experiences were very like pat on the back of the head. It's all going to be okay types of experiences, which were super important. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you got those gentle um, reminders early because, you know, some people aren't so lucky and they get scared off, you know, (laughs) early on from working with Mm -hmm. these things because there is certainly power, you know, 
um, to but behind them, um, they they come from just like an immense level of power, and you know, um, you know, it's all partly to do with us and being well researched on doses, set and setting, and uh, doing it at the right time in our life. Um, but it's also luck of the draw a little bit. You know, sometimes you just kind of get lucky with and having a great uh, experience. Um, and then other times it is that ego death thing. But usually when the ego death comes, if you were lucky in the way that you and I were, you're a little more prepared for it because at least you know, okay, I've done these things before and you do come back and like it's only temporary and just go with the experience and surrender to it. And you can kind of uh, glean more from it that way than just kind of like freaking out. Yeah, um, yeah, it's easy to resist, especially like early on in a trip and the come up or when you're, you know, you haven't done many psychedelics. It's very easy to clench your jaw and be like, I need this to end like five more hours, four more hours, three more hours, two more hours. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's definitely that, that letting go. I, I feel like I, I feel like I was lucky to have like a lot of fevers as a young kid because I, I think that that sort of trains you to like deal with physical discomfort where to have these yeah. like very intense sick coughing you know hallucinating experiences and like when you're a kid everything's normal so you're just like oh well I guess this is what life's like and then I feel like right. when I started doing psychedelics it almost re captured that part of my brain that was like oh yeah when you're overwhelmed by reality you just have to kind of let it take you where it takes you and it's not like i've done a, like the best job at that there's definitely been trips where i was you know thinking i'm gonna die for an hour what felt like a thousand years and i was just like running away from it and then had that moment of like oh shit if i just like don't resist this will be okay mm-hmm. but yeah right. yeah it's it's weird it, it's hard to talk about psychedelics in a way that's like captures both the positive and the negative just because it is so weird and there are so many uncomfortable like i've had the trips where it's amazing fractal lights everything is love there's entities coming in that are telling me it's going to be all okay and then i've had trips where it's just like blood and guts and awful for like what feels like forever and it doesn't seem in the moment like there's any redeeming qualities to it and it's hard to kind of like bind those things together but i think they are i think there is like this this like connection between the perfect loving thing that you experience and then like the most visceral physical kind of nightmare experience that you have. And I feel like both of those, Mm -hmm. it's almost like the earth realm and then the spirit realm type of thing where you kind of need to have both and connect them in some way. Not that I figured out how to do that, but I guess that's the goal. (laughs) Well, you've seen the yin yang or the yin yang, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a the the light and the darkness and the darkness and the light. It's it's almost that concept, the good trip and the bad, and you know what I mean. There's a little bit of both in each. And uh, I, what I was coming to me when you were saying that is they have different lessons. Um, those dark, you know, um, body guts kind of like sensations are just like reminding of us our of us of our mortality of that we're just this flesh and blood kind of it's a humbling experience reminder that like yo you're a little bit playing with fire when we go to the these higher realms so you need to be careful and respect it because it is so powerful um and then with the whole love and light aspect 
and like getting these like benevolent energies and these just like, you know, great downloads. That's the height of which we can kind of set our sights to um, spiritually to try and attain that um, within ourselves, even without psychedelics, which is what it's done for me is it's given me like a signpost or something that I can aim towards now with spiritual practice, because prior to having any spiritual experience, you don't understand why you would meditate. You know, you don't understand why you would practice yoga or follow a certain diet or change your morality or your heighten your integrity or like these kind of things. So just better our karma um, because we don't have any experience that there's anything waiting for us, you know, but like mm -hmm. once you get those dimensions under your belt and understand that, wow, if I do good, there actually is something waiting for me. And I'm not going to call it heaven, but it's, it's just like a cleaner release from the karmic uh, bindings that we have in, in, in times of stress or um, death or the death of other people or the, just these times that we can kind of transmute. Um, what does that bring up for you, all these types of ideas? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that really, really strongly resonates. I feel like a lot of people who get into things like psychedelics or any sort of spiritual practice or even creativity are kind of walking that line between the, whatever you want to call it, the other the heaven or the other side or the spirit realm or the bardo or the imagination land or whatever, and then mm -hmm. physical reality. And I don't think they're different things. I think that physical reality is like a limited view of a much wider reality. And that's kind of what you're tapping into on psychedelics. You're like dropping that away. And I don't, I don't know. It's a really weird position to be in as like a, an animal, it's like a monkey. Most animals, they might, you know, I think that a lot of animals probably have experiences that are like comparable to psychedelic experiences, but they're not grappling with the implications of like this weird thing where like we're both, physical creatures who need to eat food and take shits and do whatever. And we're also like connected to this seemingly infinite, profound, bizarre imagination realm. And I don't know, it's a, it's a tension for sure. I feel like what we're all doing is grappling with that tension somehow, right. but like it's, it doesn't have, it's like when you're meditating, it's almost like, you're trying to feel your body more so that you can connect with the non-physical. So it's almost mm -hmm. like you go, if like the more you go into the direct experience of physical reality, the more in touch you become with extra physical or non-physical reality or whatever you want to call it. So for me, that just yeah. brings up like this weird, this, this tension that I think we all experience. And, and I feel like that's like, I've had DMT trips where you have a very visceral sense of your body dissolving. And then there's almost like this version of your body that exists in the experience. So you're having this crazy experience of another place and like I'll do a movement with my body and that'll affect it. And there's almost this sense of there being like that thing is physical reality too. It's just that yeah. what we're experiencing in physical reality is this like, very limited sensory thing that we need in order to navigate. And then like you yeah. break that and then you're just navigating in the network of consciousness or whatever you want to call it. hundred percent. 
100%. Yep. I agree with that. Um, that really excites me actually to bring up a couple of ideas, which one would be like, have you ever played the game The Sims? Not in a long time, but, but yeah, when I was a kid, I did. So you know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a s- simulation. So, you know, imagine if that little sim, instead of just seeing like the walls around it in the video game and the house and, you know, the stuff that, that looks like the reality to it, if it were to actually see the programmed code uh, that created all that. And for example, um, you know, when you're in these video game creation softwares, there's like all these lines and like um, kind of like measuring devices. Like you'd see every square of the floor as just like a border and like the walls aren't actually physical. They're hollow, but like there's just this paint over it. So it's almost as if the sim can see the code uh, around it and, and that's not meant to because it's inside the program. It's not meant to see what the program is. That's a little bit, I think, what's going on with us. Like what we might call the matrix or just reality is almost like that code that we're bound to that without you know, either being gifted or like tools like psychedelics that can help our brain change its neurochemistry to the point that we drop that filter and we're able to now see the code of the program that we're in. Um, It would baffle and just completely um, change what you think reality is if you were to see that. But of course you know, we're not meant to really see it because it doesn't procre- It doesn't further our main functions of procreation and survival. It's a little bit too much information, as they say, TMI, you know, it yeah, really yeah. is. It's, it's a little too much information. But what's interesting is it's moving evolution forward. I, I believe that us cracking the code and like seeing the computer that we are, like seeing the observer um, is is helping us evolve and it's going to help us make more intelligently informed decisions as we pass our genes on and multiple generations are to come. And, and that really is the same thing as the stoned ape theory. It was just monkeys turning into us. And now we're going to turn into more like where we came from. Um, what does all that bring up for you? That totally resonates. Are you familiar with Donald Hoffman? He's been on Third Eye Drops a bunch of times. He's the guy who has the whole theory of like, we evolved to create this interface for reality, but what we're actually in is a network of consciousness. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at. And that's something that really resonates with me. That's kind of the sense that I always have after a DMT trip or after a big right. psychedelic experience that like, Oh, there's something else. Like it's, there's something that's very dense and like not, doesn't have this like arid separation that physical reality has that we're actually in right now but that we don't experience because we need to, you know, make babies and keep moving on. But yeah, the, right. that, that makes a, a, a lot of sense. Everything you just said deeply resonates with me. I, I definitely think that like what we are as humans is this like part of the, it's like the circle where it starts at the, you know, full consciousness thing. And then it loops around and it becomes the lizards and the trees and whatnot. And then we're almost at like the last turn in the track. Like we're turning to go on the straightaway to get back to whatever the thing is that we came from, whatever, like the, 
less limited form of consciousness is. And I don't even think like maybe it's not a perfect circle because to me, like you look at a tree and I don't think that a tree is really a tree. I don't think that a tree is like the wood that in the things sticking out and the leaves. And I think a tree is like, we're seeing a very limited version of a very complicated conscious awareness. And like the same thing's true of trees. Plants is a good example because they're, like a, a type of awareness that we can't really, you know, resonate with, I think is deeply as right. something that has like walks around and has two eyes looking at stuff. But like, I, I think that what we're seeing when we see the moon or the solar system or a tree or, or any type of network of consciousness is like a physical representation of something that's exists. Wow. Like it's having an experience in the network of consciousness that is much closer to like what we're experiencing in a deep psychedelic experience than it is to what we're experiencing now. Right. hundred percent. Wow. Well said. Um, yeah, it reminds me that, you know, almost like going back to the idea of the tree, like the physical manifestation of the tree is the shell of the tree, but <laughs> like the, you know, like when we would see like one, one of those little like sand crabs on the beach that, goes back into its shell like we would think that's it like it's just that rock there not knowing that there's something living inside of it if it was hiding um i mean to say you know like we might just see that rock and just be like yeah it's just a rock but there's literally a being in there and it's it's home so like that i've seen in my psychedelic experiences trees as these ultra wise highly advanced organisms that live hundreds of years, and that's one reason they're so freaking amazing. Um, but not only that, they're just so stern, and they just allow, and they're just literally the Tao. Like, they're the epitome of the Tao. Like, they let humans piss on them. They let birds create eggs and, and lay and have whole families in them. They let people take parts of them and, and go build stuff with it, and they just sit there they're just so fucking stoic and amazing you know what i mean and we just don't really think about it and not only that like they're creating the oxygen for us they're literally <laughs> transmuting the atmosphere as these highly advanced beings and they're eating the sun literally they're eating the sun that is next level bro <laughs> it is sick it is pretty sick to just eat the sun and keep living and they're gr like they're grounded like they're bound to the earth and like whatever the earth is like we experience the earth as this crazy ball of life that's rotating around the sun but like whatever the earth is is something so much more complicated than that it's this crazy unimaginable network of experience and the tr like a tree or a plant or just like, you know, a mushroom, whatever it is, is just like bound to the earth. It's almost like we, mm -hmm. like when things got up and started walking around, there was this like bridge that yeah. happened where like we're yep. not necessarily connected. Like we are little mud people and we are deeply connected to the earth. And I think we can tap into that like intense connection to whatever the network is. But there's mm -hmm. something about being like in the dirt and just, bound like you can't move you're there you're a tree that, that i think is like there's a, a wisdom there there's something that mm -hmm. we don't necessarily understand about reality that things that are hooked in that deeply do right thousand percent um and as well uh this was a conversation i had on a previous podcast where we talked about archetypes and what archetypes are 
And mm-hmm. um, the example given was that thing you call a tree isn't a tree. That's a story that we've created for us to make sense of the forest that we're moving through. You know, we call it a tree to have some type of understanding as to where we are and what's going on here. But it actually is a manifestation of pure energy. It just is that thing. There is mm-hmm. no name. It doesn't have a name for itself, even. You know, it's not a tree. You know, it is expression of creative force. You know, what is that? Yeah, mean? definitely. Yeah, I, I had a DMT trip where I smoked DMT in my backyard in Texas, and there was like a fence in the back and then a bunch of trees. And I had the very distinctive sense of like, going underground and like going up into the tree. And it was almost like, I mean, I I don't know how accurate this is. This could have just been my projection onto it. But like my experience was that I was this tree and what it was like was almost like it was non-local. So it was, I was over there and over there at the same time. And I was this like weird multicolored web thing that could like, spread through this tentacled network but like i didn't have like a face i didn't have like hands i just was like this we like i existed here and then i existed there and i also existed like crazy looped around a billion corners over there so like i think there's an experience that non-animal intelligences are having that is like not as bound to like five senses forward facing that's more like you're in this weird network that's kind of in multiple places at once like the experience like i think our experience is very specific and like very focused and that's why we do such a good job of like moving about the world and all that stuff like i think there's experiences that you can have as like a conscious being that's not necessarily as focused that's like kind of all over the place and like the the way that it manipulates reality is is less specific and and more kind of like i I don't know exactly how to explain it more than that but i I think i'm trying to say what i'm trying to say yeah absolutely it's like a non-local consciousness and for us to think that everything that's conscious in the world is conscious in the way that we're conscious is kind of naive for us to say you know um i i don't discredit science because I think it's done a lot of amazing stuff and it's making the most sense of it as we can. However, for it to feel like the end all be all uh, religion, <laughs> science is a little bit of a religion, you know, when you uh, just agree now it's like, well, the paper said, you know, well, that's what they say about the Bible, you know, the paper said it, you know, so, but um, yeah, I don't discredit science, but I do think that there's a lot more going on and I'm, I'm excited that, that, you know, psychedelics are starting to become more mainstream and more accepted so that we can maybe use them to further science um, and further our understanding of consciousness and and what all of these things are. Um, But I wanted to say one other um, note about what we were talking about, like the filter that we have. There's this part of our brain that does have this filter that's focused, but it can be interrupted if... For example, one of the most primal things that we can be called is called, you know, which is our name. You know, that's like it's it's built into our operating system to respond to when you hear it, you know, like for a matter of survival, like, oh, this might be important. Someone called me like so that's just an interesting tidbit there that um, you might not think you're 
scanning and analyzing a whole situation, but your brain is kind of doing that and we're just not conscious of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, that, that totally. I mean, I, I think that it's, you know, I was saying before, like about us having this very focused consciousness, but I don't even really believe that that's real necessarily. Like, I, I think that we're experiencing a lot more different stuff than we realize because we have the story of what reality is. I think there's a lot less separation between different people's consciousness than we realize. I think like a lot of the thoughts that we think aren't necessarily our thoughts that they're just kind of like thoughts and you're popping into them. I mean, I've had plenty of times where I was talking to someone, especially like close family members and then like a phrase pops into my head and then they say it immediately. I kind of think that we are like, we have this illusion of being these like very specific little creatures, but that like, even in dreams, I kind of think that dreams are shared consciousnesses of some kind not that like another person's having the same dream or that the person that you're talking to in your dream is actually a person but that like Mm -hmm. what you're experiencing is your mind's representation of actual interactions in the network of consciousness so like we're having interactions with other awarenesses in the way that like our mind presents it to ourself but like there is another awareness in the dream whatever it is that's having its own experience that represents that interaction even if it's not the same experience if that makes any sense it does yeah Yeah. um i think in jungian psychology they would call that um the collective unconscious Mm -hmm. and so when we're dreaming we tap into the collective unconscious um and i think there's degrees to it I don't think every time we dream, we're a thousand percent going a hundred percent to collective unconscious. And it's just like this full thing. But I think there's degrees to it where you can like just step a toe in or you could step your whole foot or you can maybe even step your whole body and your whole situation into that collective unconscious, um, so to speak, metaphorically, as far as like the percent of you that enters it. Um, but yes, there's been studies and I wish I could call to them right now, but I didn't really have, I didn't do research on this to prep for the podcast, but there's been studies where people would have dreams about someone thousands of miles away wearing a particular thing. And then they were able to actually test it and call them and say, Hey, are you wearing a yellow jacket? And that person would literally be like, yes, I am. Like, how did you know? I fell asleep in my yellow jacket. And then they'll be like, dude, I had a dream about it. You were in a yellow jacket. Like, I don't, that, that's kind of freaky, you know? And yes, we could kind of say, yeah, it's just coincidence, right? But um, I don't know. Sometimes there is something to this whole remote viewing, dipping into the collective unconscious and being able to see things going on in other consciousnesses and stuff like that. Um, there was a whole movie about it, um, Men Who Stare at Goats. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. that? Yep. It's a great movie, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And I, um, definitely recommend seeing it, but... Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, is it super useful? I'm not sure. Is it just something we can have fun with? Certainly. But like, you know, how useful is it to know that that person's wearing a yellow jacket? I don't know. But it does make you question things a little more, maybe start to search for more answers and take you down a rabbit hole. And as I said earlier, push you towards the, 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 uh, the edge of evolution. Because just to be comfortable and just accept things as it is, doesn't really further our intelligence or further the code that we're going to deliver to mm-hmm. our, ge- our future generations. What would you say about that? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is useful. It might not be useful in, in the sense that like the psychic commandos are going to defeat the Russians with it or anything like that. I mean, a lot of the people that were in those 
you know, government funded psychic spy networks and all that stuff, they all say that it worked. It might not necessarily have had like a big return as far as, you know, stopping the missile launches go. But I think that anything that you experience like that, it might not be useful in a way that you're going to be able to explain rationally, but it's all like nothing's happening by accident. Like you might have a very unconscious little awareness of something else that's out there in in the network of consciousness or whatever it is. And that's doing something for you, whether you know it or not. And, and, And I think we probably have experiences like that constantly all the time that are affecting the way that we act. I mean, I don't know why I decided to be an artist. It it wasn't something that I planned from a young age. It kind of was just circumstances that happened. Like I had a job that I hated and I needed to pass the time while I was sitting at my desk because I had free time. So I just drew crazy DMT realm shit because it's what I needed to do. But I don't know what inspired me to do that. I think there's something that goes like whatever's pushing us to take the actions that we take is much less conscious than we think. And I'm excited for, I I think that like a lot of the mainstream attention that psychedelics have gotten is very whitewashed where it's all about like, it's a New York times article about the therapeutic benefits of psilocybin and the studies at Johns Hopkins that showed that whatever percentage of people reduced depression. And that's all super important, but I don't think that even scratches the surface of what mass use of psychedelics would do to the way that people think about reality. I, I think a lot of the people who write those sorts of articles don't necessarily understand the Trojan horse that they're letting in and how (laughs) much it's going to fuck their whole game up. If everybody has this realization that like the powers that be don't know what's going on. And, and, you know, I I think there's going to be an attempt for sure to capture the power of psychedelics in a way that controls people more but I don't think it's going to work. I, I think right. we're going to have more and more people having experience of, you know, interactions with non-local entity type stuff. You're going to have people recognizing that like a physical explanation for how to solve a health problem or a psychological problem doesn't really explain things fully. And it's going to take a lot of authority away from certain institutions and certain ways of thinking. So I'm excited about that. I, I think that's yeah. one of the things that makes me the most optimistic about the, the psychedelic thing. And there are dangers to, you know, driving yourself too far over the edge. There are dangers to yeah. big corporations taking control of patents and making lots of money off the of stuff and like pushing down the smaller people. But I think at the end of the day, like the weirdness of it all is going to win out. It's too weird to control. I, I think what we're about to walk into is like a reality that's much, much harder to kind of put a pin in like the 1950s story of what reality was made it very easy for people in power to control things. And the, you know, I think that whatever story is going to pop up out of lots and lots of influential people tripping is not going to be nearly as easy to control. I hope so. Anyway, I feel like that's, there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic, but that makes me optimistic. Right. Yeah. Uh, Two things came up that I'd like to, to explore. And, and one was, um, uh, one was about Mike Tyson and how he had a deep realization that he had been living his life as an asshole. And a lot of us would come to that, uh, which is a little bit scary for people. You know, like, let's say everyone does start taking psychedelics. They're going to have some realizations about how much trauma that they've put on other people and how they were 
they could have been better in so many situations and they could have been more mindful and not taking this life for granted and stuff. Um, and I, and I mentioned him because I know you did an amazing painting of Mike Tyson. Um, but he had an awakening. Yeah. With five MEO DMT. And he has completely kind of like shifted his life to be centered around being a good person and sharing his self and sharing, uh, his trials and his tribulations and what he's learned from them all. Um, how did you learn about, uh, the Mike Tyson uh, awakening, which is why I assume I, I'm making an assumption, but that you painted him, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I loved Mike Tyson when I was a kid just cause he's such an anomaly of a human being and he's just mm -hmm. such a crazy person with like freakish physical strength. And I just find that <laughs> fascinating, but I, I think I must've heard it. I, I listened to him on Joe Rogan. I, I think that must've been when I first heard about that. And I just love that right. storyline. I just, I love yeah. the fact that, the baddest dude in the universe who was just a total loose cannon, you know, telling people he was going to eat their children and then going in there and just like blasting people with like the strongest punches you've ever seen in your life for that guy to turn around and end up becoming this. Oh yeah. I'm just like, I want to be nice to people. Like reality is, is like a place to love everybody and all that kind of stuff. I just think that storyline of like the, toughest dude around to be in like, I want to love everybody. And I'm such a nice, like gentle person. I just think that's, that's the best. I feel like that's like a, a template for what society needs is like that. And it, there's a, there's something about there are enough kind of mystically minded people who are very calm and like have no history of violence and are like, you know, just meditating and have this very peaceful way of, you know, speaking and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's really great, but I just, I, I like that there are people out there also who have the, I could punch your head off, but also <laughs> I have a very enlightened view of what reality is. I, I just, I love that like dichotomy between those two things. I think it's, it's like super great. That is the sacred masculine where you're strong, where you can defend yourself, where you are capable, but you also have the presence of mind to not abuse that we're strong, to not abuse that we're capable, and to try and bring more peace and love to the planet with the energy that we're sharing with the world. Um, I, I, in my mind, is what like the sacred masculine is, because certainly we have a role. We're, we're again in that yin and yang between the masculine and feminine polarities, um, and I think it is a good thing that I've come to more recently. To yes, maybe. It is good to be able to defend yourself and lift some weights and throw some heavy objects around because, mm -hmm. you know, during my early parts of my awakening and um, I'm a yoga studier, practitioner, teacher, and uh, in yoga, you know, it, the focus of it isn't strength. It's not building your muscles. It's becoming light as a feather and being able to meditate fiercely by not having protein in your system. And it's just a completely different mm -hmm. ball game. But, uh, you know, again, uh, I just got off a podcast with Michael Phillip from Third Eye Drops where we talk deeply about the middle way. And the middle way is a Buddhist concept where it's not one extreme or the other. It's not no muscles and it's not be a crazy steroid guy. You know, it's like somewhere in the middle is like kind of where to stick. Um, what would you say about those couple ideas? Yeah, definitely. I, I started doing jujitsu a year ago when I moved here. 
And I feel like it's like a, a missing piece in my life. Like it's like the thing I needed. Like the second I started doing it, I was like, oh shit, this is what I needed to do. Cause there's something about like intensely physical, uncomfortable experiences that actually pairs really well with like more metaphysical thinking and like to go from jujitsu and getting strangled by some Marine or whoever the fuck. And then to come home and paint after that, there's something like really, really satisfying about that to have both the intensely physical, painful, very earthbound. Like you can't think about anything else other than the immediate physical threat to your body. Then to go to the very cerebral kind of space head, painting crazy psychedelic stuff thing there's something about having both of those that makes each of them more meaningful and i think that's that's something that you see a lot of people coming to recently i feel like the 60s psychedelic revolution a lot of its downfall and a lot of the reason that so many of the people involved with that kind of ended up going against the principles that you learn from psychedelics is because they didn't have that other side of the coin like they didn't have the grounding thing Mm -hmm. to keep you you know embodied while also being aware of the creative realms i I think that's so important and and i i I couldn't agree more yeah embodiment yes that's a great Mm -hmm. term for it that i've heard used before yes being in our bodies and caring about our bodies and loving our bodies you know because uh you know me for one i'm a very mental stimulated person and so often i don't pay attention to my body Like, for example, I could literally be working on a podcast or like a video or music or something creative, completely unaware that like my neck is in pain because I'm just so freaking immersed in what I'm doing. And then when I take a break and step out, I'll be like, oh, you know, finally I'll come back to my body and be like, dude, what was I doing? You know, (laughs) like I totally wasn't with my body at all. But, you know, to, to be it's a practice for me to like listen to my body. Oh, I'm feeling that neck. Let me, let me stiffen up. Let me like change my posture. Maybe take a break. Maybe do some neck rolls, drink some water, right? Like let's stay hydrated. You know, like it could be easy to just go a whole afternoon and not have any water because I'm so like freaking immersed in what I'm doing. So yes, embodiment is very important. So Mm -hmm. great point. And it's humbling too. It's like, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's, kind of an irony in that the psychedelic experience can give you this ego dissolution, but it can also jack your ego up to a thousand where you get a lot of people who have had a lot of profound experiences who start to kind of base their personality on that and kind of base their self-worth on all of the experiences that they've had. And there's something about an intense physical experience that's just like shoves that all away. Like you're not special. The world will squash you like a bug and totally can like we're these little vulnerable things. I think there's a reason that like the image of like the humble person in any old story is always like a farmer or someone who's tilling the fields and like is bent over and doing hard work. And, and right. yeah, there's, it's, I, I think it's easy when you're a cerebral person and you're spending a lot of time thinking about spiritual type stuff to forget to humble yourself. And, and I think that's super important to let yourself get, get beat up by whatever it is, whether it's jujitsu or jumping in a bucket of ice or, you know, yeah. going for a crazy hike or whatever the thing is that gets you to realize that you're a vulnerable physical being. Uh, right. It's an absolute, absolute must. Yes. Amen. 
Yeah, I definitely am a big fan of ice baths and, and that was coming to my mind like right before you said it. So we're definitely in a mind meld there. Um, yeah. But as well, climbing a mountain, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? Um, I climbed uh, Cathedral Rock for the first time this year, which is one of Sedona's like higher places to get to. And uh, yeah, kick my ass, you know, like so many times I had to literally stop and catch my breath for like five minutes because I was <laughs> like, my, my muscles were on fire, like the oxygen wasn't enough. And it was like, it was an amazing journey. And that's why I think hiking and climbing stuff is fun. And, and it's a lesson in a sense, in a way that we don't usually get. Um, but yeah, getting out there, guys, like that's, that's really important to the listeners. Just, you know, do something you haven't done in a while. Just like go canoeing in the water or go climb a mountain, do a hike, you know, do an ice bath, you know, do some rolling with jujitsu or go jump on a trampoline. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that's another example is I grew up jumping on trampolines every day to the point I took it for granted. It was like, this is easy. Like I don't give, get out of breath. Um, I went probably 10 years without jumping on a trampoline and I went to one of these trampoline parks. It was hard work, man. I, not only had I gained probably, you know, 80 pounds since being a kid and now I'm bouncing so much more weight, but, um, yeah, it's just exhausting and kind of freaking scary when you're flying through the air looking for the place to land. So it's funny, but, uh, I'd, it's humbling. I'd love to jump on a trampoline. I haven't jumped on a trampoline since I was a kid either. That sounds like I've thought about that so many times, like, God, it would be fun to just have a trampoline and go jump on that. Like it's, yeah. there's a few things in life I feel like would bring me more joy than jumping on a trampoline. Yeah. yeah. yeah that sounds They're like, like 200 bucks too. They're not even like crazy, you know? So, Oh wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. One, one of these yeah. days, someday I'll, I'll have a big backyard to myself with a trampoline in it and I'll just go jump yeah. on that whenever I need to blow off some steam. hundred percent. I would love to do that too. Um, well, just to bring us to the, like the last leg of the conversation, um, you know, you are a professional artist I would just kind of ask that you maybe share whatever comes to you about how to uh, motivate other people that want to become an artist, because so many people can be in their day job and be comfortable and maybe think of art as a hobby or like, I couldn't really do it. You know, like they might have these doubts about it. Mm -hmm. like I couldn't really throw myself into that. And so for you, what has been, you know, any lessons or like game changing moments where you were like, I'm changing my life. I'm becoming like this artist and it's going to, it's going to be my path and it's going to be what I do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember that everybody sucks at first at whatever they're doing. So like if you went back and you looked at my drawings from when I first really started to try to focus on art, they were terrible. Like nothing I would ever, sh I would share them now as like a look at how bad I was type of thing. <laughs> but like sure. it, it it just takes a lot of time to get good at anything creative. So like if you feel like I've been working on this every day and I don't feel like I'm getting better and I, I compare it to what other people are doing and it looks so much better. It's just like all those people that you look at that seem like they're ahead of you and whatever the thing is that you're trying to do have been doing it for a lot longer and have just stuck to it. And I, I think consistency is important where it's like, even you have a day job that you don't like, which I did for a long time. And I just got hired to another job, which we'll see how that goes, but I hope it's good. <laughs> and, uh, but like, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, they've got a day job that they don't like, and then they've got this side thing that they're doing. And it seems like 
it's impossible to get good at that thing with all the, like the time that you're spending on other stuff. And I would just say like, keep doing it, like keep doing it. And eventually if you keep doing it, something's going to happen. That's unexpected. That's going to push you to the next level, whether it's a creative break through one day where you just realize something that you can do to make it better, or it's some external thing that happens. If you keep doing something that you feel like you're drawn to do, and you put the time in, even if it's a small amount of time every day, or it's a small amount of time every other day, or it's all the time, whatever it is, eventually something is going to happen. Like I, I would say in, intuition is an important part of it. Cause like, if you just listen, the reason I did art every day for so long is cause I had to, it's cause like everything in my body was like, you have to do this or you're not going to feel okay. And I'd say, trust that voice. Like if there's ever a voice that says you have to do this thing, you have to work towards this goal or you're not going to feel right. Just do it. Even if it kind of sucks sometimes. And eventually you're going to like almost by accident run into advancement in whatever that thing is. So I would just say, keep going. That's the best advice I have. I'm still figuring a lot of stuff out too. Like I went full time in art for the last five months or so. And it's been super up and down. It was like an on a whim one day type of thing. And recently I realized like I've got to get a, I've got to get a job. And so I'm, I'm about to start a job. So like it's, it's a process. Like I still haven't figured out how to make a living off of art. It's something that like I have friends who have, and I know eventually if I keep going, I'll get there. So like, I'd say like whatever stage you're at, just keep on chugging on and eventually you'll, you'll get to a place that you feel like, like you've done something productive with it. Absolutely. Yes. Well said. Um, for me, just to echo what you're saying there, it's almost like, you know, let's just envision the career as a game of blackjack. Um, you're going to get dealt certain hands and they're not going to be winning hands. But if you continue and you continue and continue, you're going to get a lucky hand. <laughs> it's like it's bound to happen, literally, like statistically, it is bound to happen. Like there's no way you're going to get 52 freaking bad hands in a row or whatever we want to say. One of those hands is going to be a good one. Um, and maybe that could be representative of an art piece or it could be representative of opportunities um, with collaborators or, or, you know, like maybe galleries or, you know, you go to 52 galleries and, and uh, it's easy to get dis dismissive, uh, uh, down about like the first one or two or three galleries said no to a show with you but if you go through 52 of them one's gonna ha some one's gonna agree you know what i mean so it's like just not getting dissuaded off of the first one two three five ten things you attempt to do in the artistic field whether it's music or art or podcast or whatever it might be um I say, yeah, like you're saying, just, just keep trying, keep playing this game of blackjack or whatever we want to like use as the metaphor. Eventually, you're going to get an ace and a freaking 10 and it's going to be like, damn, I'm so glad I made it this far because I finally got this dope situation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it feels so good to have those breakthroughs, especially if you've had a long time where things don't. I mean, even recently, I had a bunch of paintings in uh, a show in Miami and they were all stolen. And they're gone. Oh no! Um, Damn. Yeah, and it sucked. And I definitely had a day of like 
hitting stuff and yelling at myself and being angry, but like, it's just kind of a part of the deal. It's a lesson learned. And like, if I just keep doing what I'm doing the next time they won't be stolen and they'll be sold. And it's just kind of, I think at at whatever stage you're at and whatever you're doing, you're going to have times when you feel super down on yourself. You're going to have times when you're feeling like nothing's going your way. But like, if you power through those times, I think that's where the magic is. The magic is in the resilience to things not going perfectly as planned. And then something will happen because you made it through that not perfect situation. That's like more amazing than anything you, you know, thought would happen. Like I moved here a year ago. I didn't really know any other artists, like pretty much all the other artists I knew were through the live painting that I did with you and with with like the time wheel events. Like I, I didn't know any artists and now I live here and like some of my closest friends here are people who I looked up to online for years and whose art I looked at and thought like, wow, if I could get to that point, like if I could be friends with those people, that would be amazing. And now I am. And like, I I didn't expect it would happen this fast. It just sort of, everything kind of just fell into place. So I think it's like recognize that the shitty moments are temporary and that like the ability to get through the shitty moments is what makes the magical, like better than you expected moments happen. Yes. Amen. Thank you so much, brother. Amazing chat. Um, I would just love to point people in the direction of where they can find your work. So if you would give us any websites or social media handles and all that good stuff. Oh uh, yeah. Instagram's definitely the best spot. You can get to my website or my email address or anything through there. Uh, it's just Charlie Pateski. Um, I'm sure you'll see my name in the description of the episode. So if you just pop Charlie Pateski into Instagram, find me. There you are. Okay. Wonderful, man. Well, thank you so much for being here today and um, keep creating. Keep creating. Awesome. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. It's my first podcast, so hopefully there's more to come. We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. You did great. (laughs) Amazing chat. Awesome. That's good. All right, brother. Thank you guys for listening to the listeners and uh, much love. We'll see you on the next one.